Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. This week's episode is a recording of one of our Global Autism Community exclusive events. The topic of this roundtable was accommodations and accessibility at school and work. The participants were autistic self-advocate Andrew Bennett, mothers Karen Shapiro and Nina Wag, and community members TJ Laram and Brenda Canas. And the discussion was facilitated by community moderator Danielle Terrell. I want to acknowledge Danielle for her commitment to our mission at the Global Autism Project. Soon after discovering our podcast, Danielle joined our online Global Autism community, participated in our virtual Leadership Academy course, became a member of our affiliate program, traveled with us on a skill core trip to India, and most recently stepped into a role as community moderator. Danielle is also now managing our podcast Instagram and guest communications. Thank you, Danielle, for all that you do. Your hard work and dedication are helping this podcast and our community grow. In today's conversation, we discuss the importance of knowing your rights when it comes to accommodations, how to determine what reasonable accommodations are, how accommodations can vary across different cultures, advocacy skills and why they should be taught, empowering parents and students, and the freedom to disclose or not. In this episode, discover what's possible when you ask for help. To learn more about the participants, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. Roundtable discussions like the one you'll hear today are open exclusively for members of our online Global Autism community. We select a different theme each month, and our moderators monitor posts daily to ensure that our online space remains safe and respectful. If you'd like to attend and participate in any of our future events, you can sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you the Global Autism Community. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our September Roundtable event. This month, our theme is Accommodations and Accessibility at School and Work. I'd like everyone to take a second to introduce yourselves. Please keep it about a minute for introductions, and then we'll get on with the discussion. Karen, do you want to start? Oh, okay. (laughs) I'm Karen Shapiro. I am here in Los Angeles, California. I am a film producer and the mother of an autistic son. Thank you. Brenda? Hey, guys. I'm Brenda. I'm also in California. I'm in the Palm Springs area. And I've been working with neurodivergence for about six years now. So it's really awesome. Thanks for being here. Rachel? 
So I'm Rachel. I'm the director of training, the Global Autism Project, so host our podcast. And I am happy to be here with you guys. Thank you. TJ? Hello, I'm TJ Larum. I'm from St. Cloud, Minnesota. I'm a BCBA and LBA, currently serving as a clinical director of in-center services for a company and side gig in as a consultant and subject matter expert. Also, double side gigging as a musician, and I've been rebranding myself as the born-again behavior analyst, so I am excited to be here today. Thank you. Nina? I am Nina Vak from uh, Gurgaon, that is the Delhi NCR region from India. I'm a parent of a 23-year-old handsome young dude on the autism spectrum. I am also a founder of ALAP, that is Assisted Living for Autistic Persons. It's a residential facility, and I'm a writer. Thank you. Andrew? Hi, I'm Andrew Bennett. I'm from Houston, Texas, autistic self-advocate and transition specialist at uh, Lee College, working with adults in that setting to gain and develop skills. Board-certified behavior analyst at ABA Tree. Um, I work in telehealth and do parent training and write assessment reports and supervise the work of the techs. And I'm also a Skill Corps alum, um, two-time, most recently to Kenya in 2023. Thank you. And I'm Danielle Terrell. I'm a transition specialist and also a Skill Corps alum. Great for being here today. Thank you, everyone, for joining. Um, so as I mentioned, our topic for this month is accommodations and accessibility at school and work. So today we'll talk about knowing your rights, determining what reasonable accommodations are, the differences in accommodations across cultures, teaching advocacy skills and empowering parents and students, choosing whether people want to disclose a diagnosis, and a little more. So whoever would like to jump in and start about accommodations and accessibility, what does it look like and what do those rights look like? And this can be in the workplace or at school. So I suppose to just get the ball rolling regarding rights per se, I think in working with adults and young adults that may be entering the workforce, making sure that there is an understanding and knowledge of what an employer's obligations are to providing accommodations and what is necessary for those accommodations to be provided. And by accommodations, again, really leaning into the uh, reasonable. And so um, just a, a few thoughts on that, thinking more or less on uh, having the proper documentation, making sure that the company is understanding of what accommodations need to be made and that are reasonable and possible. Also, taking a look at minimum qualifications. I think I've worked with families and adults before where sometimes the accommodations, albeit reasonable from a outside looking in perspective, wouldn't miss necessarily meet the minimum qualifications for a job. And so right here, just kind of spitballing and rolling the ball down the hill here for anyone who may want to kind of jump on any of those thoughts. But that's the stuff that's swimming in my head right now about accommodations and accessibility. Yeah, thank you. And accommodations can look different across all different work environments and throughout people's lives. So helping 
talk, have these conversations from school age, you know, throughout employment and adult life is really important. So I have a question kind of TJ with what you said about documentation, what is the requirement? Do people need to prove a diagnosis in order to receive or to have their requested accommodations met? In my experience, and again, I, I find that that's sometimes a huge barrier is the companies I've worked for have required a diagnosis of sorts, whether that be, for instance, generalized anxiety or uh, major depressive and making reasonable accommodations around that. I think that therein lies a huge barrier especially when it comes to intellectual, developmental, neurodevelopmental disabilities, is sometimes even garnering a diagnosis or the like is actually very difficult. And so there, there becomes a hurdle to jump in effort to make sure that you get reasonable accommodations at an employment setting. Now, again, that's in my experience working with some companies, so that may be different others, but I know the larger conglomerates have to make sure that there's a paper trail and that HR is... Uh, got at least something to uh, show for it and validate that. Andrew? Well, to our context in the disability services office where I work, there is required documentation to start receiving disability services. And we do need to have that letter of diagnosis or IEP paperwork, or it could be Section 504. And a lot of times, sometimes the students don't know where that is or what that is. And we have to educate them on this because this is their first time using it by themselves. It's all been done for them before they get into college. So 18, 19-year-old is quite a formative stage for anybody's independence, but particularly when it comes to taking control of your own accommodations that to this point have been done for you and somebody else has decided that you need them based on their own independent evaluations. And now maybe you choose not to use them or ideally if they benefit you and you're comfortable using them, then continue to do so. When it's taken out of just our office, we're not allowed to specifically ask somebody what their disability is in outside of that context of please just give so us the letter. We can't say specifically, do you have this? The teachers aren't supposed to be asking either. The teachers do not have a need to know, but they do need proof in the form of an accommodation letter, which doesn't state exactly what the disability is, but it does state that they are receiving services from the disability services office and that these are the accommodations we've determined are necessary based on that. All they need to know is that, and then that letter is handed off to them. Unfortunately, some of the teachers don't receive it, they don't notice. And sometimes the student has to tell this teacher themselves, this is the letter, this is the accommodations that I have, because they don't realize or even conceive of the possibility that a teacher would not have received it. Usually, that's the way in which accommodations aren't, aren't being met is because one or both parties are not aware that they are, exist or can be used. And when it comes to examinations in campus, for example, so some of the more common ones being extra time or private rooms or headphones, those fall within the domain of reasonable 
but there are going to be some that are a little bit more difficult than others to get or to persuade other people that they might be necessary, particularly if there is a generally accepted time limit for a standardized test. That sort of gets more difficult. And a lot of people in the behavior analytic world, I'm sure anybody else that's been around that or any other discipline where there's a national standardized test knows that <laughs> that can be much more difficult because it feels a little bit more unfair to the general population. And that's certainly something I'd like to touch on, but. Yeah, those are great points. And also knowing your rights that after a college student goes to their get their accommodations, they can choose if they want to share it with all their professors or if they just feel like they need it for a certain class or subject. But definitely following up to make sure that the professor receives that is so important. Karen? I think one of the most important things is for parents to make their child feel comfortable and encourage them to feel good about asking and being an advocate for themselves, to encourage, to say that you may need these things. Because I think if the person, if the individual artistic, whatever it may be, is feels comfortable with who they are, then they will be able to advocate for themselves. And as Andrew hit upon, it takes sometimes advocacy. David, when he was in college, in university, would go up to every professor in the first class and say, this is what I need. And in fact, sometimes would tell the professor how to teach him. So I think it starts with understanding that you're, you may be a little different, but that's okay. And then they feel more comfortable in sharing it and getting whatever it is they need and understanding what they need and not being afraid of it and embracing it. Thank you. Nina, did you want to add something? Yeah. Hi. Listening to all of you guys, I feel like I'm coming from a different planet altogether. I'm almost having a complex because here we are, uh, you know, almost on a very, very primitive stages of... uh, Forget uh, reasonable accommodation. We are just talking about the very basics of survival here in terms of um, whether it's education or uh, even acceptance. The graph is very, very jagged. So yes, first of all, uh, we there is there are the rights which have been given. We have the new law. It's called RPWD Act, uh, Rights for Persons with Disability Act, which was recently enacted by repealing the old one, which is for the first time they've included autism and as recently as 2016. So you can imagine where we stand in terms of autism acceptance. And they still have accommodated it with the intellectual, uh, uh, you know, disability. So there is a very fine kind of a fight over that. But those are the things for the policy levels and all that. I'm, if I'm talking about at the ground level, it's still happening on a very, very superficial level, okay? I have just recently, just now while we were talking, I have shared my article which recently appeared in a magazine. I've shared it with Rachel and Daniel. Probably you guys can circulate it. It will give you a right overview of what inclusion 
at least in terms of education is right now because when we go so they they're doing the nitpicking they're talking about you know the creamy layer is he toilet trained can he sit if he cannot sit can you provide the shadow teacher and uh, okay he's uh, not very high functioning so we will not make him sit in the class there will be a segregated segment section he will go there we'll call him as, as so these are the things which are happening in terms of education and in my life span and i have been involved with autism advocacy from the past 20 years i have come across only handful of adults who have been to college and come back <laughs> so yeah because of the globalization things uh, we we get to know and uh, because of lot of mncs working here like microsoft amazon and all that so whatever policies are adopted at your corporate offices they are translated here because recently we were invited by bank of america and uh, they invited me through their head office to uh, and through webex to address 500 employees spread across the country from hyderabad and all those it hubs and all that so that was a good uh, way of you know talking about neurodiversity so these things are happening but in a in pockets and there's these pockets are very far and few because when you guys came you guys came to delhi which is the, like the capital so whatever is happening is concentrated on these maybe bangalore or delhi and all that if you go to those smaller towns there is nothing so that's that thank you did anyone want to share anything about maybe like the iep and what accommodations may look like for some of our kiddos in classrooms I had a conversation actually with a parent last night with um a preschool age their son who is autistic and she was under the impression that because her child was on an IEP that he needed a special education teacher so we talked about that all teachers you know may have students on an IEP and for those that may be unfamiliar with the term IEP stands for individualized education program So yeah, so again kind of knowing rights and having these conversations is so important. Yeah, Nina. So when we're talking about the mainstream schools where if by God's grace these children are accommodated, there is no such thing as IEP. They have to follow these curriculums. All they would maybe provide or accommodate with is an extra hour for you or an extra this thing. But they have to go by the the whatever the mainstream is pushing down your throat. these ieps work in the ngos in the special needs schools there they are working but then you know every ngo has uh, they have like mushroomed uh, all over the countries most of the time it is started by the parents because there was no opportunity and uh, those parents then during the process even did special education themselves or so they hired the special educators somebody had the uh, you know approach of an aba somebody had picks and you know the new things and everything so it's a mishmash of everything if i talk about my son who's 23 i always kept struggling with the iep because i used to tell them why don't we follow some kind of a parameter let's say of a mainstream school education system and see what all he can learn let's say me maybe he isn't good with maths he may not be good in the hindi language but he may be okay with the english language can we do mix and match but somehow you know the it has been very uneven i would say so of course there are another parallel stream which is the national open schools 
they have been a little bit of a success i would definitely say because there the the children get those who are not able to get accommodated in the mainstream education systems they can go pick up their two three subjects and then they so my son has is just uh, gone to the seventh grade <laughs> because of that national school so yeah that's that Yeah, thank you. I really like how you shared like, you know, he may not be good at this, but let's try this and going over those different options. And that really goes into not being afraid to ask for accommodations and as a parent teaching self-advocacy skills. Does anyone else have any experience teaching self-advocacy skills or, you know, talking about not being afraid to ask for those accommodations? Karen? So, When David was around 11, we gave his therapist, a behavioral therapist, a workbook to fill out with David that was I forget the exact name, but it was something that actually identified him as being autistic and made him feel empowered and good about it. It wasn't a negative thing. and because he had to fill out the workbook and say these are my characteristics and this is how i feel it empowered him it wasn't us telling him it wasn't someone else saying you are it was something he had to take in and he after that it was like no stopping because he felt he understood himself better and he could share that with other people and he didn't feel bad about it it just was what it was so my takeaway from that is not us telling our children but having them tell us finding ways where they can say okay this is how i feel and this is how i am and and then explaining to them them that that's not how everyone is you know that you may be different that's okay but understand because otherwise they won't necessarily understand that they're any different from anyone else i think it can start at a younger age and gradually but the workbook was great the workbook was amazing and that it wasn't necessarily us parents doing it with him that it was a behavioral therapist doing it with him so that it didn't feel like we were telling him That's great. I love the word empower, empowering others. So strong. Brenda? I was um, excited. I, I was knew you had something good to share. <laughs> I was just taking it all in and processing. I've seen it like all the way. So I've seen it to where parents have to really ask why certain things are happening and challenge an IEP or challenge accommodations and really have the support from like a young age like no um I know one specific parent they wouldn't give a diagnosis of autism and she's like no like I know my kid has autism like primary I know it's not secondary so there was a lot that happened within the school system that she had to navigate through and then her perseverance like really helped because they were finally able to get the appropriate diagnoses and the proper accommodations and once they did the child just like took off she started learning and she just started to like talk more advocate more so it was in her but some of the teachers were like no she just has a learning disability and it's 
Like she's not going to get far. Like this is basically it. And she was barely a teenager and mom didn't take that. I have also seen it in different ways where when you are attending an IEP, parents are not informed. They don't know. And what happens? And I've attended very like so many of them. And it's almost the same where everyone's talking to the parents. They're just like the psychologist. These are my updates. The teacher, these are the updates. And then like the last five minutes, oh, we need to finish in five minutes, but do you have any questions? So then the parents are like, well, if you're going to leave in five minutes, like it's not really encouraging. And and the educators themselves are not really facilitating a place where parents can ask more questions and facilitating that a little bit better for that. And that's just not good, right? Because then the parents don't know. So then you have a lot of parents like, well, I didn't know I can ask for that. Or they'll ask me like, oh, well, why aren't they doing similar to what you're doing? This is working at home, but it's not working at school. And then I'm having to like, I can't advocate for them, but I'm just trying to like explain things to them. Like, oh, like send an email and ask that person because I I don't speak for them. So like try to say it in different ways. And then sometimes they get the ball rolling that way. And then the last thing I do want to share is that many times in these IEPs, the parents are not always allowed to like, or not necessarily allowed to, but they're not always encouraged to really ask questions and really understand. But many times the children themselves like the advocates themselves, they're not even involved in the process. So they're not asked like, hey, do you like this? And I know that to a certain extent, not everyone is vocal and not everyone can express it. But, you know, they talk to us, whether they're vocal or not, they communicate. And we have to learn to really get on board on how they're communicating and if something's working for them and if they're liking something or not. So I would say that I don't really see the, and that's a big thing with me. It's like, we're not involving the actual kid. Like it's their life. Like they're the ones living with this. We're living with them, but they're living with it. So I've seen it all of the ways across many families and many ages. Thank you so much. Andrew? Since we are talking about preparing people as early as we possibly can to know how to advocate for themselves. It's important that we know how to do that in a graded stepwise manner. So I once was working with a woman in an internship and she had a daughter who was maybe eight, 10 years old at the time. And it's like, she doesn't really know how to explain to her what the autism is. And she asked me for advice. And so the way that I frame that is talk to her about it like you're talking to her about some other mature topic, because disability is a mature topic. There are many mature topics that we can either give too much information to kids too young, and that's not good, or we can give too little information. And then it really underprepares them for the natural world out there. So if kids don't know about drugs. They don't know about sex. They don't know about violence or other things or the way that people might act. They could easily get themselves into a lot of trouble in the world. And they might make poor choices if they're not educated, but you have to do it carefully because you can't overwhelm them. So if you treat it as something you can talk about openly, but at a level that they can approach at that particular age, then you're going to be very successful. Now, Some people don't feel that they need to educate kids until the day when they actually have to use them. And that's not the worst thing you could do, but it's also not great either because one, who knows if you're going to be around to teach them when they're that age. And two, 
there are some groundwork that you have to be able to do before you can have the talk about whatever. And then they're prepared to understand that. Like kids are going to need to be able to understand foundational concepts before you can drop the big bomb on them about, okay, this is how things are. And that might unfortunately not be done perfectly all of the time. It should be done as early as you possibly can at the level that they're capable of understanding. So perhaps you have a 10-year-old who needs a little bit more sensory support and perhaps they don't do well with loud noises. If that's just explained to them, this is something that's more challenging. And if you notice that you're having more difficulty focusing or it really riles you up when there's a lot of loud noises, that's why we have maybe noise-canceling headphones or something. This is just to help you to handle this better. And so this is how you use it, first of all. Then this is how you ask to use it in school. This is how you explain to other people that think this is a little strange because nobody else has that. Or maybe this one other kid has it for a different reason. This is how you explain to people why you you use that. And then later on, if somebody does not want you to use that or makes fun of you, this is how you react. If somebody is not letting you use this in class, this is how you react. You go to the principal or you go to this other homeroom teacher. They'll handle it. Go to mom or dad. They'll handle it. You see how those are interconnected, but you have to start with the education and then you can get into the practical application. It's the same with all of these other topics that I've mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The same with everything we learn how to do in life, right? You crawl, then you walk. But fostering those conversations are so important. Karen, did you have something to add? I think it's important that the student be a part of the IEP as early in the process as possible. Because I'm sorry, but I think they know what they need more than what we know what they need. I mean, I do think there's a very important place for parents, but I also think we need to allow the student a voice that needs to be heard. So as early on in the process as they're able to, I would encourage that the IB be inclusive. And yes, underestimation happens at times. And listening is a very important skill we don't always do so well. Thank you. Nina? Yeah, further adding to Andrew's point is that uh, when we are talking about IEPs that uh, either the parents are not involved or the child is not involved or the teachers are here in India, the parents tell the teachers that, look, this is what you should do. So there is like cutting the boundary. But I think there is the fourth uh, very important uh, participant, which is the peer group. Because even if you're making, let's say a school is making a reasonable accommodation and uh, teachers are giving a proper feedback to the parents and the, if the child is involved, but the very important factor is the peer group. If the child is being bullied in a class or let's say he's not allowed or made, made to feel ridiculous because of his sensory problems or something, that really hampers the learning process in that. So when we're talking about reasonable accommodations and talking about IEPs and uh, trying to create a conducive environment, I think in by uh, we should also be talking about including the peer group on sensitizing them more along with this. It cannot be in isolation or a separate kind of a thing. Because then if, you, if all these four elements are in perfect harmony, I think the results comes out very beautifully. 
Yeah, definitely. Talking to other students, because I think sometimes, you know, when you explain things, kids get it, it clicks for them. But sometimes it's just, you know, it's like, this is what's happening. And then it might help them be more inclusive. I noticed Rachel added social stories, using social stories to talk about these accommodations. TJ? By the way, I'm just loving all this conversation. Everyone's such such great insight. Kind of going back to advocacy, I come from a breadth of experience working with uh, pediatrics, particularly autistic children. And it's always been a center point of services, teaching advocacy skills, though when working with two to seven, some of those advocacy skills tend to be a little more on the basic end, sometimes getting basic wants and needs met. And so when you look at accommodations in a workplace or even an educational setting, I think a lot of the, sometimes the lion's share worth of the work is going to go to the advocates advocating, whether that be parents, guardians, advocates themselves, that may be through an agency or the school. And that's not to say that there's not a great deal of education that needs to come up for the young learners as well. But I think really emphasizing the complexity of requesting accommodations and what might be available and then dually understanding that the, and I look at schools particularly and same with workplaces, but I feel like schools are probably under the gun more with respect to resources. And then employers, there's also other motivations there that are probably a little bit more, I would just say capitalistic as well. And so accommodations may in turn result in more response effort on behalf of the accommodator. And so there's going to be, and I don't say push back, but there's going to be a little bit of advocacy needed to make sure that these are getting met is because we're, it's, they're asking for an agency or an institution to provide more, which is absolutely necessary and is absolutely within the individual's rights. But I think going back to the comment on the IEP, where, you know, you're going to have five minutes at the end and a parent's going to feel pressured or I've been in those meetings before. And it is, I always impose being there because like you need someone in your corner. I'm not saying they're not in your corner, but there's going to be six or seven of them with alphabet soup behind their name. And it's going to be a little intimidating. And so having just more individuals putting more on the table, understanding that there might be pushback. And I don't think it's out of ill nature. I think it's just also trying to reallocate resources and just trying to find a middle ground, but making sure that that middle ground is going to meet the needs because I've seen it before where it doesn't. And it's always, oh, well, they have their IEP. Well, yeah, it's an IEP, but is it effective? And uh, I did like, um, Daniel, what you said about uh, the immediate relegation of IEPs. Oh, I think they need to be in special education. No. In fact, I, I think I advocate a lot for a lot of the families I work with that are accessing general education and mainstream education to make sure that that's there because there's always an opportunity and an option. And that's just, uh, yeah, making sure that everything is covered and that everything's going to be effective. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, don't feel afraid to invite people that are outside of the school to those IEP meetings, because sometimes, you know, parents, you know, their child best. You also know 
who's working with your child and who can relate and who can share an additional perspective. And that's going to help with generalizing skills across settings and hearing input from outside resources sometimes can be really, really helpful in an IEP meeting. Brenda? I can definitely tie and relate to like what Andrew and TJ are saying. Because Andrew, you're talking about, you know, there are, it's a systematic process, right? There's not like one day they're going to be five years old and they all of a sudden know how to advocate for themselves or they're going to be 10 and they know that because of an age or because of a grade that they're in. And then TJ, like you're saying, like, you know, really getting the parents more involved and parents getting that support. But I feel like that really does tie together because as parents, it's like we're a team, right? So like as parents and us as providers and, you know, many of us are behavior analysts or like we're working in that field and we understand the science of behavior, which is totally different than psychology and everything else that they want to like try to compare us to. So we're looking like at behaviorally, like, is it effective, right? Like that is one of our core principles. Like, is it effective? And it's not, let's change it. Not everyone thinks like that. So I think as parents are tackling those accommodations and ensuring that they have the right diagnoses, ensuring that the, you know, their kids are getting the appropriate support. We can also start labeling emotions and teach them at a young age. And at a young age, it might just be like, they're not able to like emotionally regulate. They, we can teach them to say, I'm feeling frustrated. I need a break. That's advocacy within itself because everyone should respect that. I've never not respected that with working with a like as someone so young or someone, you know, on the older end, like I've worked with all ages. And if they ever say that I back off, I'm like, okay, my bad. Let's, let's go back. What's frustrating. And it's either me asking them or it's either me trying to figure out like, oh yeah. And like, I'll try to narrate for them. Like, oh yeah, we're doing math. My bad, dude. I didn't tell you we we're going to do it. Let's take a break. Let's do something else. You know, and then like in five minutes, let's come back to it. So I think that that advocacy starts with just being able to label emotion and then everyone, like as humans, we should just respect that, whether we understand what's going on or not. It's like no means no, right? And really respecting that and like trying to present it in a different way. It's like, we're still going to do math homework, but if you don't want to do it right the second, my bad, like we'll do something else. Let me try to incorporate this in a different way. Let's work for this. Like, let's save that really like amazing thing for after let's just do one math problem let's that's your baseline that's where you're at today so i think that it does play hand in hand and you can teach that from a very young age because then what happens is that as they're getting older they don't know how to advocate for themselves and realistically we haven't even shown boundaries right so because of that we can get like a kid that is way too compliant because we never taught them that it's okay to say no so now what happens oh well mom mom's always like or parents are like I want my kid to listen. They're not listening. I'm like, okay, but they're five, they're six. Not every five or six year old is going to be 100% compliant at all times. Or guess what? They're a teenager. So, you know, developmentally, they're a teenager right now. Therefore, they're going to talk back to you. That is normal. You want this. But if we're never teaching them to say no and really understand no, like this is, you know, I don't want to do this or it's too loud in here. For not teaching that from an early age, the late, like the older that they get, the harder it becomes to teach that because it's not second nature. We're having to unteach to reteach something that we could have just taught in the first place. But then that circles back to parents are not always aware of what they can do and what they cannot do because in the school systems, again, it's like the educators and the providers 
that's the culture. It's like, I'm going to give you all of the updates. I'm the professional. This is what it is. It's not person-centered. It's not super collaborative unless they have an advocate or unless somebody says like, hey, you need to fight for this. And a lot of the times we say that. I know that like being like as BCBAs, we're not technically supposed to be advocating, but it's like, hey, send that email. This is a great point. Let's write this down. Let's send it to the right people. But if they don't have that, then, you know, you get like we're just pushing the curriculum on them and it's not always productive. I'm not saying it's not always productive, but I'm just saying like sometimes it's okay to just take a step back and say like, what am I actually trying to teach here? What is going to be the actual outcome of this? And like, what can I do to support this? And then the last thing I will add to that is like when they are growing up is that the advocacy of like disclosing, right? We touched on this sometimes. And and I'm actually kind of going through this with one of my therapists where he's not wanting accommodations, but it's not even that he doesn't want accommodations. It's that he's trying so hard to fit in that he forgets that everyone requires support. So it's like, dude, I'm just like, I have no idea what your situation is. I really don't care what the situation is. Like, What I do care about is that you need support and I am here to support you. And I want to make sure that I am supporting you, but like teaching things to say, like, and I do this all the time. I say like, Hey, like my time management is like, it's not always there. Like I I can get stuck in a project for three to four hours or I can like procrastinate on something. So I just say like, Hey, if it's really important, add it to my calendar. Like if it's not in my calendar, I'm going to miss it right? Leave me a post this so I can add it myself, right? And I say like, this is how you can support me so that I can show up. Am I disclosing anything? Absolutely not. It's none of their business, right? It's my business, but I'm at that stage of like, that's where I'm at. So I say things like that, right? Like, or um, I'm going to close the door. It's getting really loud, right? I'm trying to get some work done. And, you know, everyone just kind of adapts. I feel like Especially in our field, we just kind of adapt like, cool, whatever, close the door, right? A lot of the times we're not thinking like, oh, is that person autistic? Do they have ADHD? Like, why are they trying? It's just, it's loud. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to try and get some work done. You know, when you come in, just be mindful of like not to make too much noise or I'm in a meeting, the same thing, right? So I think that to a certain extent, we can just ask for reasonable accommodations or like just support, as I like to call it, just reasonable amount of support so that we can be successful. And then in turn, it's like, well, if I'm doing my job at 100%, then that means that you're able to do your job and not worry about mine. But at no point am I going, do I feel personally the need to actually disclose? And even with him, like, I'm just like, hey, how can I support you? It's not, hey, do you need me to accommodate something for you? Do you have some kind of diagnosis? I'm just like, hey, I want to support you because I'm looking at like data trials and you're at 30, we should be at 60 an hour. So like, how can I better support you? Very concrete. This is my problem. This is like how I can support you. And I want to hear back from you. What do you think is going to work? Right. And I'm not worried about like, I'm not going to go around my whole life asking people like, hey, are you autistic? I've noticed that you're having problem with social cues. I'm just going to help them feel accepted and integrate them and just change what I'm doing until I find what works for them. So I don't know if he's actually autistic. I don't care. I just know that he needs support and I'm trying to get there. So that was my whole speech that you guys were probably all waiting for because I was so quiet. That was amazing, Brenda. Thank you. The passion is so amazing and it's so important. And so many things that you said, I feel like we can just go on to more and more topics 
I do want to draw attention to the chat. Nina mentioned that sometimes as a parent, it's hard to dissociate the autistic aspects from like a regular or typical age behavior. Nina or Karen, do you have any stories like specific challenges that you can share that maybe other parents that may be listening to this can also relate to and maybe how you worked through them or just something that's really, maybe it still is a challenge. In India, the parenting is a little heavy-handed, you know, in that sense. It's uh, the cultural thing, whatever. And especially when a child who is nonverbal or is more prompt-driven, so the mother's role becomes very overarching on that. She wants to decide everything. And uh, we are not really, really reached there where we are teaching even our uh, nonverbal children to become self-advocates in so many other ways. There are so many other ways. When we say self-advocate, doesn't mean that the child will go and do a flag march on the streets or something. There are many ways, like on day-to-day basis. But even to make the parents understand that, especially the mothers, is a tough task for us. Because um, so the child, when he gets into his teens, the mothers are still talking to them as if they would be talking to a six-year-old. And now that child starts asserting himself. So they associate that assertion with, oh, he's having a meltdown or he's having a, uh, you know, behavior issues. No, because you have not switched from uh, addressing the cute, cuddly guy who has now turned into, you know, a strappy, uh, moustache-toting teenager. You know, you have to switch your gaze. And when that doesn't happen, there's these jerks happen. That is what I meant. Most of the time, I have to tell them that he's a teenager. You have to now uh, change your tone, you change your mannerism. You have to accommodate. The reasonable accommodation has to start with the parenting itself. So that really is my point when I said this thing. I hope I uh, make sense. <laughs> yeah. I'll yeah. speak about a younger age. So when David was two and three, he was lashing out quite a bit and and having a lot of meltdowns. And quite frankly, we didn't know what was going on at all. We had no idea. We had to seek advice. And then eventually, right before he turned four, he was diagnosed. And I think the most important thing is for the parents to be open to whatever is going on and to embrace and not, A, take it personally, and B, and really not deny it. I think the worst thing a parent can do is deny what is being told to them by professionals. And and a lot of that comes out of fear and a lot of that comes out of um, blame that they blame themselves. And or it comes out of I think it's less so now, maybe because there's more autism out in the world, but feeling ashamed and there's nothing to be ashamed of. There's nothing wrong. Yes, it's guilt-driven. I agree. It's a lot of guilt-driven. I think you have to take it out of you personally and embrace it because you love your child and you want to help your child and you want to be there for your child, that whatever's going on, I think the worst thing a parent can do is deny what's going on. And I've seen it really hurt the child. And so I think 
as parents, we want to give and we have their best interest always at heart, I'm sure. And with that, you have to embrace and figure out what works best and how to and ask questions and seek. It's hard. It's not easy. I know. Parenting is the hardest job and there's no book for it and there's no one way to do it. You know, you can't be taught how to do it. So you have to just come from an open heart, a loving heart. And uh, I want to do what's best for my child and not take it personally. Thank you. Andrew, did you want to add a last point? Yeah. To follow from the two parents' point of view, just really quickly, um, I've been in situations as a clinician where parents have seen the outward maturation of their children. There was one case where a girl was going through early puberty and on the outside, well, she's got the body of a woman and it's working like one, but inside and developmentally, she's not there. And that's a very hard thing to reconcile for parents because it's like, I don't know what to believe or how do I treat her? How do I talk to her? Like in some people are looking at that as like, like you're saying, denial that the kids are growing up and becoming mature and becoming closer to adults. And there's also a truth of reality to it is that they're not like other people their age, even all aspects. And I could see that this parent was really suffering with that dichotomy. And it's important for us to treat that with a lot of compassion because we can either look at it and say, yeah, they're hurting their kids and maybe they are in one sense, but they're also really struggling with something. And it's just reflected in the way that they're trying to cope the best they can. So it is very important that we are compassionate to people that aren't at the same place that we are in terms of understanding who their children are and how valuable they can be and also how to best serve them at the stage that they are in life. So don't make anybody wrong, but listen. Yeah. Thank you. Danielle, so if people do have a few more minutes, maybe we can touch on that topic of examples of best practice of what people are seeing done that's being kind of granted, I guess, in schools and in the workplace so people can have more ideas of what they can ask for. Yeah. Like examples of accommodations that are already built in. Yeah, things that are already built in or maybe some unique accommodations that you've heard of that have worked well with people that you work with or for your own kids or for yourself. Brenda? I think a good place to start is since we talked a lot about the IEP and parents not always knowing what they can or cannot do. I would say a perfect example of this is or something that for them to know is it's okay to pause right? They might say, oh, we have an hour. It's okay to say like, I need you to explain that, you know, differently or ask questions within each segment, even if it's going to exceed the hour, because all that's going to happen is that they have to schedule another meeting to do another IEP to like continue it. So that's okay. Don't, I don't want parents to ever feel like, oh, but you know, it's their valuable time. Yes, but it's your child. 
they'll move their stuff around. Um, they'll do what they need to do to, they need to accommodate that. That is a reasonable accommodation because you need to understand what is in that IEP. A lot of the times they want to see like school and home is different and it's not because if something is working at school, we want to understand why it's working at school, what is being done. And then most importantly, how can I translate that to be at home as well, vice versa. Oh, okay. You're having, you know, difficult, he's having difficulty in that area in school. Well, at home, this is what we do. And we think it's working. And then can you incorporate that into what you guys are doing? So that way it's always the same or very similar when possible. Right. So it's okay. An IEP, it does not, it nowhere in any law have I ever seen that it says it's, it's limited to 60 minutes per year. Right. I don't think that's in there. If it is, please correct me and show me, but I don't think that's in there. So I think that's very important to really know and understand. And then the last thing to that is at the end of that hour, you don't need to sign it. You don't need to sign it right away. Take the time that you need to really review it. If you're not comfortable with saying, with pausing them and like taking up some of that time during the IEP, that's okay. If that's our comfort level, that's okay too. Then what we want to, we want to encourage parents to do is take it, really review it, whether that's going to be with an advocate, with the other parent involved or whoever's in that support system, whoever can better help you understand what is happening or just taking the time to read it yourself and really trying to digest the information. You don't have to sign it right away. And you can just tell them that like, Hey, I want to review this. I'll sign it by Friday, you know, I'll sign it next week or whatever it is. So you don't have to sign it. You can pause nowhere, anywhere does it say it's only an hour. And that is a reasonable accommodation. They should be able to reschedule something, you know, right away, even though they might say, no, we can't do that. Yes, they can. And they should, and they will. Thank you. Flowing off of what Brenda kind of mentioned too, I, I mean, I like the the time piece. I think that's always kind of a uh, go to accommodation, like more time. I would even add to like the right to effective therapies, and so advocating for speech and language services, advocating for occupational therapy, any of these services that schools can offer. A little tougher is the getting external providers in there and promoting collaboration with them to Brenda's point too about the home and school setting. Like we want to make sure that there's collaboration across providers. And so making sure that that's built in or at least advocated for, I'm a big fan. And again, it's really tough to pull this off, but getting the external providers into the school, like having an RBT there helping out. Cause I do know that again, going back to my resources comment that a lot of these schools are strained with resources and having one teacher to eight students is when the students are accustomed and pretty much only successful in those settings with a one-to-one, it becomes kind of a moot point. Further, just again, building in those, the space for collaboration and making sure that that is kind of an expectation as well, because I've been in plenty of IEP meetings where I'm like, okay, we can chat. We'll, we'll collaborate. Yeah, 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 we will. And then crickets when I try to, and again, resources be had, Schools are under a lot of stress, but it's let us let us take a little bit of that load off. And then last, last point, pardon, making sure that if there I've had it a lot here, particularly in Memphis, where the child is almost bullied into being in school for a full day when they would benefit a great deal from one to one at home. And I say bullied in as have had the schools call parents saying, if you don't 
bring them for a full day, we will that we'll get law enforcement involved, and that is a that's a heavy hand to play, especially when accommodations and disabilities are involved. And so, all that to say, in summation, right to effective therapies, get what you need from the school, or advocate for the schools to collaborate with external. Nina, did you want to add a takeaway for? Yeah, yeah, just a just a quick thing because uh, you know I'm running this uh, group home. These are the young adults who have been not accommodated uh, reasonably uh, or unreasonably anywhere in the mainstream, whether it's uh, being the education system or or the you know out of the school, any institution or vocation and all. So I have created a different ecosystem where I am calling these IEPs, IGPs the individual growth plan, because what do we need as a human beings? You know, there are like four aspects, which I have, I have created these uh, IGP around these four aspects that as a human being, if we are in the center of it, we need our physical well-being. We need our intellectual growth. We need our emotional nurturing. And then we need, of course, our uh, spiritual sense in a sense that where am I in this whole equation and the entire universe, you know? So I have created these IGP around that. So here we are not talking about reasonable accommodation because, sorry, I don't accept these minimum basic thing that you're offering me for my children. Because if they cannot speak for themselves, then I have to shout at the top of my voice for entire world to listen because we do not accept substandard uh, morsels that you are throwing towards us, sorry, we'll create our own systems. So we are creating IGPs if they want to learn, if they are interested in academics, if the parents as well as think that the children is showing interest, we push them for academics. So there are three of young adults who are actually enrolled in the NIOS, the open school. There is one guy who's doing his guitar. He's not interested in maths. We're trying to convince the parents, forget that. Let him do this. Let him work on his social behaviors, etiquettes. I have got him gigs. He's actually getting paid for that. He's eating, living, breathing guitars. So what the hell, you know? He can earn money from that. He's happy. His soul is happy. His soul is in music. What I feel as a just as a parting shot is that maybe we have to turn on our heads to see where our society is going. You know, we have to be rethink, reboot ourselves, you know, what our education system is about. If our education is not educating our senses enough to accommodate people from diverse needs, then we need to re-educate ourselves, not only, and reasonably accommodate our own senses. That is what I have to say. (laughs) Thank you. What a thing to celebrate, too. Andrew, if you're ready. Mostly my takeaway to everybody is following from the last thing that I said as well is to know who you are and know your needs no matter who you are, but it's particularly important when your needs are so special and unique and different. There are a lot of accommodations that a lot of people need and you're not the only one that needs them. So it's okay for you to ask for those. And there are some that are so particular and specific to you that nobody will know that unless you ask for it. And that's where you have to step up. If you can at least ask for the common things, you're going to do better than most people. But if you're not going to thrive until you know yourself deeply enough to ask for what you need and not what anybody else needs. That's not easy. And most of us will never quite get there. 
I don't think anybody will ever know themselves 100%. That's just <laughs> that we're just not capable of doing that. But the closer you are to knowing everything that you can about yourself, the more successful you'll be. And that applies to you and your kids, your clients, everybody that you serve. Thank you. Rachel, did you want to add a takeaway? Sure. I think, you know, this has been said before, maybe, but it's worth repeating that when we look at accommodations in the workplace, it oftentimes really just benefits everyone who's there anyway. So how can we normalize, diagnosed or not, what it means to set the environment up so that you can be successful? So, you know, I think about when I'm in front of my computer for so many hours working remotely, what are some accommodations that I can make? Well, maybe it's, all right, for this call, I'm not going to join on Zoom. Let's have like a phone call where we can walk and talk just to kind of like allow ourselves that break. And I think if you are working in an office or in some kind of environment with other people and maybe those who are afraid to ask, see that other people are asking, it just gives permission and it doesn't make it weird. And so it just kind of encourages more of that compassion and inclusivity also. Great. Well, thank you all. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you for facilitating. This was so much fun and you did an amazing job. Thank you. So it was so, so fun to see you transition into this role. I remember when you were joining the community roundtables a few years ago, just as a little participant, sometimes with your camera off, sometimes just... (laughs) I know you were working sometimes too. And so you were just trying to do everything. But now here you are and you've stepped up into this role and it's just so great to see you shine. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for coming. These conversations are always my favorite. So thank you everyone for your time. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. What were some of your takeaways from today's episode? Share your ideas about accommodations and accessibility over in our online global autism community. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Or a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Or are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our online global autism community to connect and collaborate with people from all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.